Has the heating gone off again? Yeah. <laughs> Do put coats on if you need to. Um, I'll just stand here and freeze. It's fine. <laughs> no. Um, we are, we've arrived at the last, the seventh of John's signs. And remember, he calls the seven miracles that he, he tells about Jesus' life. He chooses them and he calls them signs rather than miracles because in every single case, it is a sign that points to Jesus. It's a sign that points to Jesus. And John is explicit in this. And as he closes out his gospel, he explains why he's gone to the bother of writing in the first place. And he's written these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And that by knowing him, you may have life. He's not writing it for entertainment purposes. He's not writing it to pass a wet afternoon. He's writing it with a purpose in mind, and that is our salvation, that we should come to know Jesus as our Lord. And that's why he chooses these seven miracles to write about. He, he's clear. He says there's loads of other stuff Jesus did, loads of stuff, which means he's chosen these seven things because he wants them to point to who Jesus is. And this is the, the last of those. Last week, Jonathan shared with us about Jesus healing a man who had been born blind, something they'd never heard of in that time, that actually someone, not who had become blind through sickness, injury, or, or whatever, or old age, but somebody who had been born blind. And Jesus did that amazing creative act in giving him eyes that could see that he'd never had before. And, and this was astounding. And following on immediately from that, that was chapter 9. In chapter 10, we have Jesus teaching the people um, about him as the good shepherd and encouraging them to see him as the one that they need to follow. And then he comes into major conflict with the Jewish leaders. And they are calling into question his authority to preach in this way, to say these extraordinary and obnoxious or blasphemous things about himself and he rather than running away from controversy he plunges straight in and says before Abraham existed I am I mean how to court controversy and if anybody ever says to you oh, well Jesus never actually claimed to be God then ask the question, why is it then that the Jewish, Jewish leaders, even in this one example, take up stones to execute Jesus for blasphemy because he was doing exactly that? They understood exactly what Jesus was claiming and it was so obvious to them and so obnoxious to them that they were ready to kill Jesus for it. So yes, yes, in the language of the time, in the culture of the time, in that place and that time, Jesus absolutely was drawing a parallel between him and God. And that was so obvious to his hearers that he only narrowly escaped. Well, I say that in human terms. God had his plan, um, and it wasn't for Jesus to die at the hands of the authorities in that way. But Jesus escaped this stoning, and they, he and his disciples left Jerusalem and travel back north to Galilee, to that area. And so then we get this last, this last um, sign from Jesus before, before he goes to Jerusalem for his week of, of passion, of the, uh, the, the trial, the execution, the resurrection, all of that that we will celebrate in a few weeks' time at Easter. This episode that we read about Lazarus happens just before that. So things are hotting up. Jerusalem... Um, and the southern region of Judea is not a safe place for Jesus to be. 
So when he gets the message that his friend Lazarus is dying and he's in the north, it's understandable that his disciples say to him, don't go, just don't go. It's not safe. They only just escaped from being stoned last time. What would happen this time if he went south? But um, Jesus, Jesus meets them and challenges them, and he's not going to change his plans. He knows where he's headed. And in this encounter, I want us to think about the different people who Jesus engages with, because it tells us so much about who Jesus is, and how he connects with us, how he relates to us, how he walks alongside us. Because here are the disciples, they're fearful. I mean, Lazarus to one side, the very thought of taking another road trip down to Jerusalem is just petrifying. They, they don't want to do it, and they think it's, it's just ludicrous. And they try and dissuade Jesus. Did you notice it was Thomas? The one who gets the bad rap for never believing and doubting. It's Thomas who says, come on then. If, if he's to die, let's die with him. If he's to go to this, this place that is so dangerous, let's go with him. Let's finish it together. It's sort of that rallying cry, the sort of Aragon moment, you know, come on, we will do this. Today is our day and all that kind of stuff. That's our Thomas. So when we get to Easter and resurrection and we're all wagging a finger at Thomas for not believing, remember it was Thomas who got, us, got them all moving down to Jerusalem in the first place. So Jesus faces the disciples' fear and, and says, if you look very carefully in the text, there's sometimes he says, let us go. And there's one point where he says, I'm going. And then the disciples agree and they go together. So he, he shows the way. And he doesn't let the disciples give in to their fear. He goes anyway. And they go with him, which is great. Before we even get to Bethany, I want you to know how Jesus felt about that family. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Because quite often we... We know of Mary and Martha from that whole um, episode where Jesus comes to the house and you remember Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet being a disciple and ladies, Jesus wanted to invest in women and thought them worthy of learning alongside men. And Martha gets a bad rap because she's busy doing the stuff that was associated with her role and we all wag the finger at Martha and say, oh, you should have been listening to Jesus too. Do you know what? He dealt with that at that moment. But here, in this passage, when we read about J Jesus as he's about to go down, down to, um, towards Jerusalem, to, to Bethany, it says in verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. He loved them. They were all very different, and he loved each one. And we need to recognize everything else that he does in the context of the fact that he loves these people. They're his friends. Jesus says something very troubling, or he does something that seems troubling. He hears that his friend is dying, and he waits. And when his disciples finally cotton on to what has happened, and all this talk about falling asleep, and Jesus' sort of enigmatic language, and suddenly they get it plain. Lazarus has died. we see that Jesus waited and allowed that to happen. 
And he says it something that, as I say, can be troubling on the surface. He says that Jesus, Lazarus has died for a purpose, for God's glory to be seen. And we know the end of this particular story, so we could probably say, oh, well, I understand that. But it's troubling in the midst of it. It is troubling. Because most of us want to take hold of Jesus by the scruff of the neck, like the two sisters, and say, Jesus, if only, if you had been here, both sisters, so very different in character, reacting to their brother's death and dealing with their grief in such different ways, they both say the same thing to Jesus when they meet him. Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. So we've got Martha, and she, you saw on the screen there, running out to, uh, going out to meet Jesus. And do any of you, are you any fans of Austin and Sense and Sensibility? So does that ring any bells with any of you? Blokes are sitting there with arms crossed going, what's all this nonsense? Okay, ladies. And those of you of a more sort of sense, uh, sensitive nature might have <laughs> enjoyed the story. Matt loves it. Okay, great. I wonder if Jane Austen had Mary and Martha in mind when she wrote Sense and Sensibility. The two sisters, Eleanor, Eleanor and Marianne. Actually, I had a very good friend called Marianne, and we used to laugh about this because Eleanor ended up marrying Edward. But yeah, anyway, it doesn't matter. Too many parallels to go there. But the two sisters in this story, in, um, in John's Gospel, mirror this. And it's not just a head and heart thing, but we're all different, aren't we? Some of us um, work more with needing to think things through, and others of us react more strongly and are led more strongly by our emotions. And that is not to say that Martha slash Eleanor don't feel anything. Martha is grieving the loss of her brother, and she's grieving and trying to make sense of it in a way that is right for her. And so she and Jesus have a theological discussion she wants to understand what's happening. And some of us are like that. And Jesus, Jesus engages with her, with her questions. And he asks her, do you believe that he will rise again? And then she's, she says to him, she speaks of the hope she has in the doctrine that she holds on to, in the theology that she's got, which is the Jewish understanding of resurrection on that final day, when all who, are, who are, belong to the family of God will be raised up. And she's got that right. Jesus doesn't, doesn't undo her faith in that doctrine. He doesn't correct her. He doesn't say, how silly. He doesn't tell her she's wrong. But he wants to bring it alive and bring another dimension to that. She says, I know the resurrection will happen. I have that hope. Maybe she's stoically holding on to that truth because knowing that and believing with, with all she is, believing that he will rise on... There is hope in the future somewhere. And Jesus stands before her as if to say, it's not just for the future. Today, I need you to see me. Not just doctrine, not just theology. And remember, he doesn't discount that. He doesn't erase it. He doesn't um, draw a line through it and say that's wrong. But he says, I am here. There's more you need to know than just doctrine than just uh, a belief system. I am here. And then he says those astonishing words, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me, though he die, will live. And then he says to her, do you believe this? 
In other words, do you believe me? And it's a classic moment of somebody coming to saving faith in understanding who Jesus actually is. And her response, if ever you're sort of wondering, I don't know how to turn to Jesus, I don't know how to say yes to him, then look at Mary, uh, Martha's words. Because she says, yes, Lord. Great place to start with a yes. Not a running away, uh, not a ignoring. A yes, Lord. She calls him Lord. I believe that you are the Christ I believe. That means I accept. I understand as much as I do. I understand. I accept. I choose to accept the truth that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into this world. You are the Messiah, the one who can save. I believe that. And in that moment, she connects with Jesus at a whole other level. And yet her understanding isn't complete. She still doesn't twig what Jesus is about to do. And you see that later on. But then along comes Mary. Martha goes back in the house, grabs Mary, well, at least tells her that Jesus has arrived. And Mary rushes out. And the Marianne way of doing things, she's, she's distraught. She just lets it all out. And that's not wrong either. That's who she is. And where Jesus came alongside Martha and affirmed her and encouraged her and gave her hope in something bigger and more tangible and more right in front of her than even her understanding and her doctrine that was the foundation of her faith and her hope. With Mary, Jesus draws alongside Mary, awash with grief, paralyzed with grief, absolutely consumed with her emotions. And he doesn't tell her to put on a a stiff upper lip. He doesn't tell her, there, there, now stop crying. He doesn't tell her to, you know, put a brave face on it. She's sobbing her question to him, if only you'd been here. And what does he do? He draws right alongside her and he is so moved. You know that moment where it's like your lip starts trembling and there's this lump in your throat and your voice cracks and you think, I'm not going to hold on to this any longer. That, moment, that sort of sense of being about to tip over the edge, that's the, the Greek. That's the word they mean when they say Jesus was troubled in spirit. That's what it is. And most of us have been there. So Mary doesn't get told to, to put a brave face on it or to just pull herself together. Jesus, knowing what he knows, knowing what he's about to do, and knowing who he is, still chooses to draw alongside her and to share in her grief. The compassion he shows, remember, com means with, and the passion is the suffering. He's there with her in that suffering moment. So I don't know if you see yourself more as a head or heart person, more of a a Martha or a, a Mary, or somewhere in between. I think what this shows us is that Jesus the one who loves you and knows you wants to draw close to you and relate to you in the way that's right for you. And he's able to do that. So he offers Mary compassion and then to all of them a demonstration of his power. Now each of these signs that John chooses, we, I've already reminded us that 
he, does, he chooses these signs to point to who Jesus is. And Jesus does these miracles in order to build faith in people, be it his disciples, his friends, the crowds, whoever, to build faith. That's why he does this. He raises Lazarus, his friend, from death. He brings him back to life. Lazarus still died a second time. Jesus wasn't there when Lazarus died again. This wasn't about preventing death, per se, or reversing death for all of humanity. It didn't have that scope in mind at all. It wasn't, that wasn't the aim, the purpose of this sign. As with all his signs, this was a teaching tool. It was a way of building faith and leading people to that saving faith that would say, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. It's that purpose he has in mind. You see, in a very short while, his disciples are going to watch him die. But they're also going to have to get their head around the fact that he comes back from the dead. And after this episode with Lazarus, they won't be able to say, well, it's never happened before. In fact, he's preparing the ground for them to say, I've seen you do this for Lazarus. So I have more reason to believe that, yes, you are alive. And let's face it, if those disciples didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, we would not be here. The church would not exist. Christianity would be dead in the water. Because as, as Paul points out, it, it all hinges on the resurrection, on believing the truth of the resurrection. Because if Christ did not rise from the dead, then we are to be pitied more than anyone else because our faith is empty. It all hinges on the resurrection. And Jesus is laying the ground for the disciples to be able to believe in a few days, weeks' time that Jesus himself has risen from the dead. It is a demonstration of his ultimate power over death. And it is offering hope beyond circumstances. But it's not once and for all reversing the power of death in this world. Do you remember there's a Queen song which used to get me very cross when I was a teenager <laughs> with the words, who wants to live forever? And as a Christian, I'd be going, no, I'm going to live forever. And then now I look at the world around me and I think if in Freddie Mercury's mind, this is what living forever is going to be, then no. I don't want to live forever in this broken world. I have a hope that the world that Jesus will bring about when he returns will be very like this, will be beautiful like this, will have so much potential and, and, and fruitfulness and it'll be brilliant. And yes, I am looking forward to living forever with a new resurrection body as well that probably doesn't hurt as much as this one does. And that I will live forever, but who wants to live forever in this broken world? Not me. So death is still at work in this world. And for those of us whom death has touched, it feels sometimes difficult to get past that and we get stuck looking at the signpost rather than the one that the signpost is pointing to. By that I mean that 
death as the greatest enemy or the last taboo or, or the wages of sin, all, all of these big titles that we give death, only begin to scratch the surface of what it feels like to confront it and to have it in your own life. And our culture doesn't know what to do with death. There are some who, to their credit, are consistent enough in their unbelief and their atheism to say, when this life is over, that's it. We become compost and no more. And at least I I give them credit for their consistency. If there is no soul, there is no eternity, if there's nothing eternal and transcendent about us or about God, if there is none of that, then yes, that is the end. But we, our culture struggles to understand death and we have stories of stars being put in the sky which are supposed to help children, yet one science lesson blows that out of the water. And where do they, where do they stand then? We talk about living on in the memories of others. Tell me, how many of us can name our great-great-grandparents? How long did that memory actually live on? You might do your research and find a family tree. Is a name the same as saying that person lives on in the memory? Our culture struggles to make sense of death because death is huge. Death doesn't belong in this world. It came in because of the brokenness that sin brought in. And death is awful. It separates us. None of this nonsense about they've just slipped into the room next door. I'm sorry. If they're just next door, I would be through that door in an instant. They are not just next door. My friend died. She's gone. Somewhere else. She's with Jesus. And that's great. But it hurts. Because we're separated from those we love. It seems unfair. And it raises the questions as Christians. What if? As non-Christians, what if? Could I have done more? Could the doctors have done more? As Christians, we ask questions. God, Jesus, if only you'd been here. Those sorts of questions that Mary and Martha had. I wonder if they asked that the second time Lazarus drew close to death. Death seems to run counter to everything that God is about. About life. About hope. About light. About all these things. And we can get so caught up in looking at Jesus raising Lazarus and saying, please do that for me, for my family, for my friends. We get so caught up in that that we forget the sign is pointing to Jesus and who he is. Does this miracle mean that no one will ever die again? No, it doesn't mean that. Does it mean he, f- he had a favorite in Lazarus, and he just showed favoritism to his best friend that he'd do this for. And what about all the other people dying around him in the world, in even his little town and village? What about all those he didn't raise again from the dead and give back to, his, to their families? Was it just favoritism, a capricious God choosing who would live and die? No. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. He loved him. He loved God. And God chose to use him to put him through the trauma of dying and rising again. And I believe it was probably quite a traumatic experience. Although no words are recorded for Lazarus. But God chose one of his own to be the instrument that would point to all that Jesus wanted to show the disciples. And he chose to put Lazarus through that to show the world something that couldn't be shown any other way. 
a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a few weeks' time. Belief in eternal life. Belief that Jesus has power over death. Death, where is your sting? Boy, it stings. But ultimately, death becomes not the enemy if we trust that God has the last word. It becomes the one-way door, yes, with all the sadness that implies, but the door into the presence of God. It's a different, it's a different understanding of death. So we have this sign, we have this sign pointing to Jesus above all and pointed to him so that people will believe. And very often we think, don't we, oh, if only we'd have a miracle, a big miracle here in Chudley. The churches would be full, everybody would believe. They wouldn't be able to deny that God is real and that Jesus has come to save them and it would be fantastic and revival would break out and all we need is one big miracle. There wasn't a miracle probably bigger than Lazarus coming back from the dead four days in the tomb. But we don't see universal belief, saving belief in Jesus. Some, yes, did believe. The disciples, yes, they were more prepared, even though they didn't know it, in their faith. But some still went to the authorities to denounce Jesus. Some still couldn't see what the sign was pointing to or wouldn't submit to the reality of who Jesus was. Some still didn't believe in the way that John writes and Jesus wants people to believe. One big miracle is not going to do it. But the faithful living of those who know that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Son of God, the one, the Messiah sent into the world, the faithful living, the entering into the suffering of others by the people who bear Jesus' name. That, day in, day out, will be the witness that changes lives, I think, and points to the one who, yes, has the power over death and sin in our lives. And our call is not necessarily to be miracle workers, although I do believe that we have a God who does still do miracles, But our call is to be faithful witnesses, other signposts that keep pointing to Jesus, always to Jesus. And we have, in a sense, a signpost here, the bread and the wine, remind us again and again each month of why we do any of this. And remind us that Jesus had and has power to break through that hold that death has on us. Yes, death will still come. That doorway still needs to be walked through to meet with Jesus. But that power, that sort of, like the, the grave clothes, the binding that, that limits us and, and speaks death to us and stops us from, from living the life of fullness, all of that restrictive power of death, that is abolished because of Jesus. And that's what we're gonna celebrate in a moment. I realize that probably none of us have got this far in life without being touched by death. And if anything I've said has hurt, has opened wounds, then on a human level I want to apologize, 
But on a, a level as a pastor, I want to say, if God has opened up something, then please take the opportunity to pray with me, with Emma, um, with others, and allow God to gently, in his time, bring healing and wholeness and restoration because he's a God who loves you so very much. Let's pray. Jesus, we believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And we believe that you offer life. And so we come to you and we ask Jesus, do you speak clearly and lead us, meet us as we share bread and wine together. Meet us and minister to us. Amen.